0: And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. and You did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, You did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The word of the Lord. Gracious and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to what you're teaching us this morning. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. The setting here for our passage is that last week before Jesus' death and resurrection, the Passion Week, In it, the series of events had already been set in motion that would ultimately lead to Jesus' crucifixion. The day before, Jesus had entered the city of Jerusalem with the crowd shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. After coming into the city, he had gone to the temple and he had cleared out the money changers, saying, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. Then the blind and the lame came to him, and he healed them there in the temple. This is now uh, the next day uh, that Jesus is coming back into the temple to teach, and these things that uh, the authorities are referring to as these things, this is what they're talking about. This uh, drama unfolds with Act 1, the Confrontation. Jesus enters the temple and he begins to teach. The chief priests and the elders of the people, those who are in charge of that space, they see him and they're ready for him this time. Yesterday they may have caught them a little bit unprepared, but today they're locked and loaded, they're ready. They make a beeline for him and they've got their question in hand. Uh, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Uh, um, This is not really a a genuine quest for information. This is more of a challenge. Uh, They they assume that they know the answer to their question, and they assume that whatever answer Jesus gives will in some way uh, benefit them. They can use that in in some way. Um, For several years, I, I served as director of the Arkansas Department of Health, and uh, during that time, many times, I had the opportunity to answer questions posed to me in public settings. Uh, sometimes um, they were from state legislators, sometimes they were from members of the media, reporters, other times they were other members of the public. And I quickly learned that not every question is, is actually a, a quest for information um, <laughs> or knowledge. Um, some of the questions are not actually questions at all, they're just kind of long statements that are designed mostly to bring attention to the person asking it or or whatever issue they're interested in. There are some questions that are really kind of trying to to trip you up. Um, Some of them are are designed to try and get you to say something that the speaker uh, wants you to say, or at least to generate a a nice sound bite um, that can be taken out of context and used uh, for some other purpose. Uh, there are some of the questions, though, that are, are more like this, a direct challenge. Uh, by what authority are you doing these things? Who has given you this authority? And when those question comes, when those questions come, uh, you, you need to know your statutory authority, and not only that, you need to be able to back it up with uh, specific citations in the legal code. Well, this is the kind of, of question that uh, that that Jesus uh, was presented with. And, and again, those who are asking, made many assumptions, so I'd like to talk for just a moment about assumptions. Um, If you're able and willing, uh, if you could take your right hand and put it over the left side of your chest, sort of like you're saying the Pledge of Allegiance, um, if you feel there for a moment, you might be able to to feel your heart beating. Um, It's a little bit easier for me because I'm up here preaching. Um, (laughs) If you can't, you can move your hand down a little bit, maybe lean forward, uh, the point at which you can feel the pulse uh, the, the, the strongest is, is called the point of maximal impulse. And uh, that's part of the cardiac exam. You, you can stop. Uh, your heart. Now, if you didn't hear your heart, if you didn't feel your heartbeat, um, uh, don't worry. If you can hear my voice, your heart is probably beating. <laughs> um, there's a lot of reasons why you might not be able to, to, to feel your heartbeat through your chest wall. Um, one sort of rare reason is that about 1 in 12,000 people are, are born with the heart actually on the right side of the chest. It's a condition called uh, dextrocardia. And if I can have the x-ray, please. Uh, this is an x-ray of a, of a young woman with dextrocardia. It's not actually just a flipped around x-ray. You can see the heart is, is on, the, uh, on the right side of the chest rather than l- the left. Years ago when I was in my medical training, um, we had a patient come into the hospital with, with dextrocardia. It was unrelated to his, his medical condition, but it was certainly an interesting finding. And the way it worked is we would, uh, the interns, residents, medical students would work up the patients, and then we'd, we'd present them to the attending physician. Uh, our attending physician was a cardiology professor and he also taught the class for the medical students on the physical exam. And he was a major proponent of the physical exam. In fact, he would chide us many times for wanting to order expensive tests when we ought to be able to make the diagnosis just by carefully examining the patient. So as I was presenting the patients to him and I came to our patient with uh, uh what seemed like at the time a brilliant idea flashed into my mind um, and so I said to him, this patient has a very interesting chest exam. Um, what I could do is present the patient to you, and then we could actually go to the bedside. You can examine the chest and then describe it you know, to our team. Well, my professor thought that that was a wonderful idea. So off our, we went, our whole entourage of medical students and interns, and uh, came to the, to the patient's room. Uh, our pr- par- cardiology professor He introduced himself, asked a few questions. Then he came to the chest exam, and he begins by placing his hand over the left side of the chest. After a a moment of silence, he looks up, and in that kind of professorial uh, uh, voice, he says, you can actually feel the PMI. At that point, my heart sunk. Because everyone in that room, me, the interns, the medical students, the patient, and his family, all knew that the heart was on the other side of the chest. I didn't know what to do. I mean, how could I say anything without totally embarrassing my professor? I thought, surely he'll figure it out as he, as he listens to the chest. Uh, no such luck for me. Um, he pulled out his stethoscope, and carefully, meticulously, as only a Cardiologist can do, he listened to all the major points on the left side of the chest, describing to us what he was hearing and what these findings meant diagnostically. All the while, everyone knew the heart was on the other side of the chest and everything that he was saying was, was nonsense. Now eventually I had to tell him uh, that the patient had dextrocardia, and I would just say he was not uh, very pleased. I, also learn the lesson, try not to anger cardiologists. Uh, but I think that's a, a lesson for a, for a different sermon. <laughs> the point here, though, is that, that he made a reasonable, although very wrong, assumption that the heart was on the left side of the chest. And because of that assumption, no amount of skill or experience or expertise uh, was going to save him. Um, the... Chief priests and the elders of the people also had certain assumptions about the nature of God, and the nature of man, that left no room for the possibility that God might be speaking to them through this young rabbi from Galilee. Uh, let alone that this young man may actually be the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. It was their assumptions that kept them from the truth, from receiving the answer to their question. We also have assumptions that may be keeping us from receiving the answers we're looking for, assumptions that we have about God, assumptions about other people, assumptions about ourselves. My wife and I served as uh, medical missionaries in Kenya for a number of years. During that time, one of the difficult theological questions that we grappled with, was how can a good God allow so much human suffering. Behind this question there are many other questions. What is the nature of suffering? Is suffering the same as evil? Can good ever come from suffering? And What about the sufferings of Jesus? Jesus came to give us eternal life, yet this period of time between our physical birth and physical death is such a tiny sliver of of eternity. So why do we assume that God's primary concern should be our, com- our material comfort in this life? Uh, scientists who do research will oftentimes say if, if none of the answers make sense, uh, make sure you're asking the right question. And that's true also for us. If none of the answers that we're getting uh, make sense to us, let's go back and examine our assumptions. Make sure we're asking uh, the right questions. If you're not hearing what you're listening for, maybe your stethoscope is on the wrong side of the chest. What are your assumptions? That brings us to Act 2. Uh, I'm of the mind that most questions actually should be answered with an answer rather than with a question. It's um, sort of low-level annoying to me when people uh, respond to my questions with questions. You know, So, Socrates, why do you answer every question with a question? Well, tell me what you mean by that. Um, However, there are some questions that probably are best responded to with with another question. In my house, at least, um, the question, where would you like to go uh, for dinner this evening, probably is best answered with the question, well, what are you in the mood for? Um, Of course, the classic question that King Arthur was asked on his quest for the Holy Grail, what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? (laughs) Of course you know what do you mean African or European <laughs> this question that Jesus was was asked uh, I think probably fits in that uh, category of um, questions that should be answered with questions first of all the people asking it weren't looking for an answer and second Jesus had been very uh, vocal about and, and public about uh, uh, the fact that he was uh, sent to do the will of his father that he was on the under the authority of his heavenly father. This was no secret. In his question though, uh, Jesus reveals the answer. If John's authority came from heaven, then then so did Jesus's because John the Baptist testified about Jesus. Uh, You have to learn to crawl before you learn to walk, and learn to walk before you learn to run. If they couldn't figure out what to do with John the Baptist, they were never gonna understand Jesus sometimes we also struggle to understand spiritual truth because we want to skip ahead, we haven't given time to understand the basics. Cognitive dissidence is, uh, is the perception of contradictory information and the psychological stress and, dis- and discomfort that it causes. Um, things that can cause cognitive dis- dissidence for us include uh, things like actions or behaviors, that are not consistent with our values or beliefs that don't uh, correspond with reality. Um, And when we hold these things that are inconsistent in our mind at the same time it creates a lot of distress. So we're driven to try and resolve the cognitive dissonance in a number of ways. Uh, One way is by excusing or explaining, justifying or rationalizing our behaviors so that they actually seem to make sense uh, with our values. Um, Another way is to avoid, reject, or explain away information that challenges our false beliefs. The question that Jesus posed uh, to the chief priests and the elders uh, heightened the uh, psychological stress uh, that they were experiencing because of this cognitive dissidence. You can hear it as they discuss uh, his question amongst themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. On the one hand, it it would actually be in the best interest of these leaders uh, to acknowledge John as a prophet, especially now that he was dead. Uh, Prophets um, tend to be a lot safer when they're not alive to call you out as a brood of vipers. but they can't do that without incriminating uh, their previous unbelief. Um, On the other hand they really would like to be uh, popular with the people but they know they can't do that if they reject John as a prophet. So they're supposed to be leaders but in this case the people are actually out ahead of them. Their need to justify their past behavior towards John is holding them back, keeping them from really seeing what God is doing now in their midst. They're trapped in the past, and they're unable to move forward. Unable to resolve this cognitive dissidence, they finally give up. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. We also can become stuck in the past, unable to process new information that challenges our past behaviors or beliefs. Uh, Sometimes I've I've heard people say, I have no regrets. If I had to do it over again, I would do it exactly the same way. I think that's a good sentiment. Um, On the other hand, it also suggests that that if we would do everything exactly the same way, that we've learned absolutely nothing from the experience. Um, The need to justify past decisions sometimes keeps us from learning the lessons uh, from our mistakes. Jesus, though, offers a different path to relieving that cognitive dissonance. It starts with acknowledging the beliefs and behaviors that are keeping us from a deeper understanding and intimacy with God, with others, and ultimately with ourselves. And also being willing to change our hearts and minds to receive the truth. Uh, The Greek word that is used for this change of heart and mind is metanoia, and it's most often translated in our English Bibles as repentance. Where are you experiencing cognitive dissonance? Finally, this brings us to act three, the parable. Uh, Jesus now turns back towards the crowd, and he begins to teach in parables. There are three in a row here, the parable of the two sons, which is in our reading from this morning, the parable of the tenants, and the parable of the wedding feast. Even though he's pretty much wrapped up this conversation with the uh, elders of the people and the chief priests, uh, they don't have an answer for him, so he doesn't have an answer for them. He hasn't stopped uh, uh, talking about, uh, about them or talking about the subject of authority. Let's overview this parable. There's, there's two sons... Uh, the father goes to them and uh, asks each of them to help out in the vineyard Uh, and he specifies today not uh, tomorrow or some other time Um, one says no I don't want to but then later he changes his mind and goes the other says oh me sir Uh, maybe a little bit too enthusiastically Uh, and then and then he doesn't go now if Jesus had raised teenage boys perhaps there would have been a third son who says yes and he goes, but you have to remind him about every 15 minutes to, to finish the job. That's, I think, for another, another parable. So this, uh, this parable is on the one hand about authority, but it's also about love. The father asks because he has authority. If they weren't his sons, he would have no business asking them to work in his vineyard unless he was willing to pay them. But it's also about love. The sons don't have to go, and ultimately, their response is motivated out of love for their father. Uh, obedience and, and, and um, uh, obedience is is a response of love towards those who are in legitimate authority over us. Now, this isn't how we express our love to everyone. I love my children dearly. But that love does not obligate me to do everything they ask me to do. In fact, that would probably not be a very good idea at times. Um, But the particular kind of love that we have for those with legitimate authority over us involves doing what they ask us to do, even when we would prefer not to. That love is tested uh, when when the person in authority actually asks us to do something that we would otherwise rather not do. That's what the father does. And we we know that the sons don't wanna go help out because the first son says that. He says, I don't wanna go. And the second son, although he seems eager, he ultimately reveals his uh, true sentiments by by actually not doing it. Um, God does, at times, ask us to do things uh, that we'd prefer not to do. to uh, uh, take risks in relationships, to trust him for things, to endure suffering. Um, And it's at those moments, our obedience to him is both an expression of our love for him as well as an an acknowledgement of his legitimate authority over us. Um, It's our acknowledgement that God really does know what he's doing and he does really have our best interests in mind so what's the message of this parable well one is that words are not enough unfulfilled commitments are certain to hold us back in our relationship with god expressions of faith without evidence of engagement are meaningless so where do you find yourself in this story who are you have you responded to god's love and with eagerness but then lagged behind in, in living out your identity in Christ? Um, or have you said no thank you in the past to God but are now being drawn to respond by His mercy and love? The good news is, is that it's not too late to change our minds, not even for the second son. The tax collectors and prostitutes entered the kingdom of God first because they responded with faith and repentance But the invitation was still open to the chief priests and the elders of the people, if they would change their mind. And for us, this invitation is still open. It's still open to us today. Jesus gives us both invitation and challenge. I'd like to conclude our time this morning um, with two questions for reflection. The first is, what assumptions, beliefs, or behaviors may be holding you back from receiving God's truth and experiencing deeper intimacy with Jesus and with others. The second question is, what would it look like for you to let those things go? Let's take a few moments to consider these things before we go into our time of confession.